Sometimes the breath is rather fine. Like satin or silk. At other times more coarse. Like burlap, canvas. Perhaps it's in between. As you attend to the breathing, See if anything along that dimension is apparent. Again, without straining. Just another dimension of quality of breathing. Once again, any difference between the in-breath and the out-breath? These questions or probes are simply designed to get you to look carefully. That's all. We're not saying that you should have a fine breath or you shouldn't have a coarse breath, nothing like that. So they're simply descriptive terms I'm using to, to get you to come in closer to your breathing a little bit. See if you can distinguish or discern some difference. If you can't, don't worry about it, drop it, and just be with the breath.
as we continue to look in on our breathing. You'll see that each breath has a certain feeling tone to it. As you're with this in-breath, this out-breath, it will feel either pleasant to some degree or unpleasant. Or neutral. If your mind can't find anything pleasant or unpleasant, it's neutral. So give a bit of attention now to the feelings, what are called Vedana. These are not emotions in Western psychology, they're more primitive, really. Just an immediate response of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral to our life experience. Everything feels a certain way. We're very, very sensitive humans. So the breath is one of these feelings at this moment. Again, don't spend a lot of time trying to puzzle it out, because if you're doing that, probably it means it's neutral. A lot of the sensations in life, the feelings in life, are neutral. We just don't notice them because they're not dramatic. Breathing in and breathing out. If you've been able to notice the feelings in the breathing, are they the same for the in-breath, the out-breath, or is there any difference? Even if I hadn't made these suggestions, if you spend a lot of time with your breathing, little by little you get to know that world, just as you get to know a person if you spend time with them. 
if you really listen and look. It's the same in meditation, at least in this form. Now let's ease up on the attention that we've been giving the breath and relax a bit. I don't mean not to pay attention, but I mean don't look for these qualities. Let those instructions go, they're over. And just return to your breathing as you've been doing for a few days. but in a free and easy way. Just coming to rest in the breathing. And as you sit and breathe, once again, let's pick up a bit more experience in knowing the body more intimately. Remember in the sense of the body in the body. As you sit and breathe, be open to any bodily sensations that are particularly dominant, vivid, distinct, anywhere in the body. So we still have a, we're maintaining a light touch, light contact with the breathing. It's not exclusive the way it has been for a few days. It's happening anyway. And as we sit and breathe, we're also open, attentive, receptive to whatever the body has to say in its own language. And here, feel free to stay with something, perhaps there's a strong sensation somewhere, perhaps discomfort, or uh, there are many dramatic feelings that are very pleasant as well. You may want to stay there for a while and really focus your attention on certain sensations that are distinct in the body, so we're not running around trying to find anything. Let these bodily sensations come to us, they will. If nothing is dominant or distinct in the body, then just feel the breathing, which is also part of the body.
Feel free to stand up as you have been standing up and continue this practice as you stand and breathe. Bodily life goes on. Once again, as you notice these sensations in the body, just as we did with the breathing, these bodily sensations will feel a certain way. They'll either be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It's not something you have to do a lot of thinking about. It's pretty obvious. And if it's not, it usually means that it's neutral. As we observe life in the body, life in the form of a body, perhaps you can also begin to see the law of impermanence at work, anicca. It's a term you'll see over and over again if you read books on the Buddha's teaching. Change, impermanence. Everything is in constant. Or put another way, in constant flux. Again, not straining to see this, but as you look closely at some sensations in the body, do they last forever? Perhaps you're saying at this moment, well, this pain has been here for a long time, but as you look closely, it's not really the same pain. It's a process, pulsations, that are very alive. It's an energy that's moving, becoming more intense, less intense, shifting its location. Perhaps it's unpleasant, then it becomes even more unpleasant, then it disappears altogether, then it comes back.
just about five minutes more to this meditation. Continuing to breathe and observe the body. If your body itches, this is a good opportunity to study that instead of scratching. Unpleasant sensation. From one to ten, where ten is very unpleasant, it's a hundred. But don't scratch it, just this once at least in your life. Observe it, see what happens.
I don't have to say feel free to stand and stretch since most of you are doing that anyway. (laughs) Feel free to sit down and make yourself uncomfortable again. Okay, I'd like to talk over a little bit about what's been happening and also uh, draw some implications from uh, what we've just done in terms of practice. Let me hear what's on your mind that might help me to say things that are a little bit more relevant rather than just give a speech. I mean, if there's nothing on your mind, I'll give a speech. Yeah. Yeah. Please. Um, I'm feeling depressed. I'm feeling depressed. Right. What do you mean, is that all there is? You mean to life or to this practice? Yeah. Yeah, yeah what? Oh, okay. What do you want from practice? You would like to have what inner peace? Mm-hmm. Okay, the way to inner peace in this practice, there may be other ways, more streamlined, faster, and better, but this is the only one I know, um, is through the absence of it. It's not the only thing we do, because, for example, just being with the breathing brings, especially as you learn how to do it, brings enormous peace. Uh, and other, we also do chanting and other meditations like loving-kindness, meditations on compassion, and so forth. But all of them, as wonderful as they are, they cultivate the quality that you want. But the real peace, the deep peace, uh, requires understanding. You don't have to agree with this. 
That is, if you do, for example, the all of us have a tendency to get depressed. There's a tremendous amount of sorrow in being alive. Uh, to the Buddha's credit, he didn't hide from that point. And that sometimes causes a problem for many people, thinking, oh, Buddhism is just a real downer. You know, just always talking about dukkha, suffering, and so forth. But if you read the complete teaching, what the Buddha is saying is that the way to real joy, real fulfillment, real peace, is through the way it is for us. And since, as humans, who can deny that there's sorrow in human life? Did you get infected by depression by coming to Omega or coming to this meditation? Probably you brought it with you, as all of us have. Am I, am I speaking too strongly? Yes. See, but you're, well, everything you've said, you're focused on the passing. You want to get rid of it. I walked and then it felt better. I understand. You, yeah. Did you miss the first few days? The first day. Okay. Hmm. See, that's why one of the reasons I didn't want to do a sampler is you have to sort of. Um, the heart of the practice is to, the hardest thing to learn is not sitting still for long periods of time, etc., or go, even going on retreats for months on end. But it's to, uh, the mind wants particular experiences. When we come to a retreat, uh, it's at expense, both in terms of money, time, effort, energy, there are other things you've given up that you could have done, you've come here, and it's only natural the mind wants to get something out of it. And what it wants to get are those feelings that I was talking about, Vedana. Again, see if it's true. We want to get more pleasant feelings. Uh, I traveled all the way to Thailand to, to get more pleasant feelings. You're not as stupid as me. Okay. Of course, the teachers there roared with laughter. Uh, yeah. So the peace that you're talking about, I mean, a peace worthy of its name, substantial peace, is, uh, requires that we get to know ourselves as we are, self-knowledge. Self-knowledge includes the whole aspect of, of what we are as a person. Uh, if you were really committed to understanding yourself, and I don't mean just thinking understanding, but really intimate and direct understanding, then uh, you can't say... I mean, you could, but it wouldn't be real understanding. So, well, I want to know this aspect of myself, but I'm not interested in that. That's what we're already doing. Many people are quite facile and articulate in giving their story with this happened to me and the, all the things that happened to us. There are still usually there areas that are, we're not in touch with or we don't want to be in touch with or we're really frightened of that we don't talk about or even know about. My point is not to frighten you but rather it's a different attitude. The attitude is one not so much of getting particular experiences. Who wouldn't want happy experiences? We all do. But of learning how to be awake and mindful of the experiences that we actually in fact do have. So depression is not good or bad. It's just what came to you from the point of view of this practice. The question is, uh, what do you do with it? If you fight it, deny it, try to get rid of it, 
you're, you've been doing that. I, I don't know you, so this is a bit uh, something or other. <laughs> Help me out. <laughs> Presumptuous. <laughs> when my mind gets quiet, I become a dum-dum. <laughs> So one art we're learning, and I would say if you even uh, open that up a little bit during your stay here, uh, from my point of view, your time would have been well spent, is learning how to get comfortable with discomfort, how to not always bolt and always sort of react <gasps> uh, to not only depression but all kinds of things, but rather slow down, use the breath to just slow down and establish an entirely different relationship which is one of friendship to whatever turns up, where you're a non-violence. We're quite violent to ourselves. There are certain things that we really disapprove of, and we try to quickly banish them, or we don't even allow them to surface. Okay, so this is the opposite. It's a very different attitude. It's one of opening and allowing what's there to come up. The instructions, more and more, sorry to say what you're in store for, is an invitation or whatever is there to come up. But we're learning to be, we're training, just as you would train for a sport, to be equipped so to know what to do and be able to do something with it as it turns up. It's not for you to drown in depression, but for when depression comes up, for it to be workable, for you to learn how to make it workable, so that you can really see what this energy that we call depression, or fear, or joy, or happiness for that matter, it's not just uh, these negative, so-called negative states, but the full range of what makes up a human being, uh, it's insight into that that we're interested in. Uh, so the fact that depression came up is not good or bad, and it's very much part of the practice. You know why? Because it's what your life was in that moment, that's all. It's not that we love depression or that we uh, think we've got to dredge it up. We're not trying to dredge anything in particular up, but the fact is that it turned up. Let me um, skip a little to where we're going. You probably, some of you know, and some of you perhaps are starting to see. Tomorrow we'll open the field up even more uh, to include the mind itself. If you think about it, we were with the breath primarily for a number of days. We let, some, we let sound in and now bodily sensations. And, uh, you know, you can include smell, of course. And tomorrow we'll let the mind in. So one, the meditation we'll be learning tomorrow will be after you've calmed down a bit using the simple in and out breath will be to sit, just to sit and breathe with no agenda whatsoever, none. Uh, because you're not supposed to be feeling anything in particular and nothing in particular is supposed to be there. What you're open to is your life as it is in that moment. So we're learning to sit right smack in the midst of our experience and to allow that experience to just unfold freely. Let the mind roam, let feelings come, and our practice will be to meet whatever turns up with mindfulness and interest. So if depression should come up, now this is after you've been practicing for a while, depression, not the word, but the energy comes up, the practice would be uh, to turn our attention to what, what is being called depression. Uh, there's definitely going to be something in the body, right? Can you remember whether there's some 
Pardon? Yeah, the body felt a certain way, right? Okay, so usually that's, to begin with, the most accessible, accessible and easy to, to observe. Uh, the more subtle thoughts and images and so forth, uh, often uh, we get captivated by them and, and, and caught up in them. So it's, to begin with, the bodily expression of depression is uh, more manageable. And as we breathe in and breathe out, and the breath can be very, very helpful here, uh, kind of accompanying us as we walk into a, an emotion or a bodily state that we don't like. No one wants to be depressed. But there it is. Now, um, no one wants to be afraid. No one wants to be lonely. But unless you say hello to these states, how are you possibly going to say goodbye? It makes no sense. So we all want to say goodbye. We want to skip the hello part and you want a magic bullet. Maybe such bullets exist, but this is not such. This is not four days or five days to nirvana. It just, uh, this is for, I would call this a practice for adults, uh, which means sometimes it's boring. Sometimes it's incredibly wonderful. It's everything that life is, so that sometimes there's depression. In order to keep doing this practice, patience has to be developed. But I would say all spiritual practice may be anything worthwhile in life. Can you be a good parent if you don't develop patience? Or any business, how can you do it? So uh, sometimes people have dramatically lower expectations for what is needed uh, for this than they do for other things that they've already done. Uh, could awakening or enlightenment be less demanding? than some of the things we've already done? I don't think so. Okay, but the joy is the doing of it. It's not some incredible far-off goal where Steven Spielberg's special effects go off and uh, we call that something. Uh, it's, that, um, it's a more, fulfill, more fulfilling way of living. Um, I know this probably isn't true when you're beginning, but the day can come where even when depression comes up, or anger, or fear, or loneliness. And when you're really practicing with it, meaning you're engaged, you're uh, in communion with it, uh, there's, uh, there's a certain goodness about doing, it, good, doing that because you understand that you're doing the very best thing that you can for yourself. Now, to the beginner's mind, that I don't mean an open mind, I mean someone who's very new to this, that may make no sense. You know, why don't you just give me a chemical so I'll feel better? Okay, sometimes that's essential, and sometimes the depression is so deep that meditation isn't appropriate. But I would say, for most people, uh, it's not either or. You know, we work along many fronts, external help and internal help. What I like to, uh, uh, I'm going on like this because it's not just about you, it's about all of us, and it's the next step, and so we have to lay the groundwork for it. Let's take depression, since you brought it up. Typically what happens is we want to avoid it. Isn't that true? We want to escape from it. Uh, and two ways that we relate, two major ways, one is denial. We press it down, and pe some people are very good at that, to a point, and until finally they can't do it anymore. Okay. But the other extreme is, well, there are many escapes. I don't want to have to go through all of them. Uh, you all know them. They're the, an, an elaborate network of escapes that we have. The other one is when we drown in it, 
that is we are just deeply depressed that means we've identified with that that energy that visited you that's probably what most of us have been doing anyway without any any uh, training in meditation uh, we don't know that there's another option so we're caught either between on one extreme denial suppression evasion escape coping with all that family and the other one is helplessness where we're just totally identified with it and as a result feel tremendously depressed and then can make a statement like I am depressed I was very depressed now so these are the two extremes the practice is neither the practice is right here in the middle where the, if the depression is out we let it out and we attend to it we bring full attention to it it's also not detachment from it as some people think although to begin with you may find that that's the only way it can be manageable sort of you create an observer who's pulling away from the depression who's observing it that's on the way to begin with we're rather self-conscious about meditation anyway so there's a self-conscious meditator doing it but with practice that falls away and there's just an intimate observing of the energy of depression when you do that when you're able to do that you see it for what it is it's a kind of energy it arises it passes away moreover it's not self uh, I know I'm this part is confusing especially if you've not read or heard this kind of these kinds of teaching um, it's an energy that comes and goes now if you identify with it attach to it then you make self then it really uh, you may as well it may as well be you because you've attached to it and then uh, that um, dramatically amplifies whatever the depression is it makes it much worse so our art is a kind of participant observation we're not trying to pull away from life quite the contrary we're learning how to open up to life but to be able to do that in a way that's skillful now to begin with if depression comes and you're a beginner and you can't do what I just said fine I understand that you probably can't so then it's best to pull off pull off to the side perhaps do a loving kindness meditation or to do some walking meditation as you did that's not uh, wrong some skillful way since if you try to observe it as I just mentioned you may not be able to and what will happen is it'll be an exercise in futility you'll just drown in the depression and that's not going to help anyone certainly won't help you but little by little the day comes where um, you see that no matter what turns up it's workable you develop that confidence in yourself that comes out of uh, a sincere commitment to practice it's not a hobby this is not a, a hobby it becomes more and more a way of life again I'm not talking about I'm not trying to turn people into Buddhists whatever that might mean to you I don't think the Buddha was a Buddhist Dharma is a little different what it means is is uh, understanding the lawfulness of the way things are so we're developing a calmer more concentrated mind so that it would be able to look at that state that you just uh, you know brought to us and to be able to see its nature to see deeply into it and as you're more able to, to see that at least in theory until you've seen it for yourself when you begin to see that it's an energy that arises and passes away it's kind of impersonal 
You didn't ask for it, but there it is. You don't own it. It comes and goes when it wants to. As you begin to see that, it starts to lose its power. Uh, mindfulness itself is a power. Think of like the sun shining on a flower and the flower opens up. Mindfulness is a, is a force. It's a very subtle one. You could say invisible. But when, you learn, when, you, when mindfulness is directed to something, the energy of mindfulness, let's say, touches depression or fear or loneliness or add what you, whatever you like. And what happens is there's a transformation. A lot of the energy that's trapped, let's say, in fear, frozen there, sometimes for many, many years, the mindfulness touches it. That means full acceptance of it, allowing that energy to flower, meeting it, uh, seeing its nature, its impermanence. Uh, what happens is the energy that's been held captive in fear, depression, loneliness, anger, and so forth is released. And then it's just free energy for you to use, to live with. Um, does that make any sense, at least in terms of the words? Um, when you said that's all there is, what, help me understand that. Okay, it's important that you know it. It's more important. Mm -hmm. What do you What do you want more? You want peace, as you said. But how How will you How will that come to you? Uh, okay. Are you rather new to insight meditation? To, to Vipassana meditation? Okay. Anyway, I hope it gets a little clearer as, as we go on. Please. Well, in the case of depression, it seems to me if you, you stay with it, you can explore the nature of it. But I don't understand that there's any, can be any expectation that you'll understand the causes. This is not about that kind of understanding. That's it. Yours is intellectual understanding. You were a situation. Yes. That what? Bring it about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, wisdom, some of wisdom is, is understanding our limits. So, as we, if you start to live a mindful life, you start to see how you actually live. And some of that could include avoiding situations that produce it. But that is still not the uprooting of it. Do you feel that there's no possibility of uprooting? See, the main thing to uproot is the attachment that we have to these states. It's not the state itself. We don't have control over what's going to come to visit us. But our relationship to it makes all the difference in the world. So that if, if depression comes and we attach to it, uh, fighting it is, the, is attaching to it. Also, uh, swallowing it uh, is attaching to it. Then not only is there depression, there's torment. Okay, so that if depression comes and we can see it as just like a rainy day, oh, here's depression. We're not necessarily suffering as the depression is there. It's just that kind of mind state. Now, but it's also true with practice, unless there's a deep biological reason, that it seems to thin out. 
Because if people have been practicing for a long time and they're still very, very depressed, Yeah, you see, it's a different feeling. Old. Yes, actually, to begin with, it often is like that. You go in and out, in and out, in and out. Uh, but isn't it very different when when you uh, when that observation turns to some attachment? There, it feels very different. So then, what we would look at is attachment. By the way, um, okay, I was going to sum up the, all of the Buddha's teaching in just a few sentences. Reader, <laughs> Reader's Digest <laughs> version, Book of the Month. Is that still going on? Or just my childhood? Yeah. Um, yes, is that, is that clear? Uh, some of the most important work to be done, look, the practice is about liberation. And uh, it's liberation from non from attachment and clinging. That's what produces the suffering. So everyone's in a hurry to get liberated. But what they don't understand is, first you have to understand what attachment is. In fact, if you get to know what attachment is, that I'm saying 60%. I don't know where I came up with that percentage. Let's just say a fair amount of your work is over, is done. Because we haven't begun to do that. So here's a little simple contemplation that they emphasize in that Ajahn Chah, who some of us uh, spend a lot, learned a lot from, is a Thai forest master. Uh, a simple hint, whenever you find yourself suffering, even if it's little suffering, and I'll give you a really little one in a moment, uh, just inquire, am I attached to something here? Means am I holding on or pushing away to something? Some years ago, I went into this uh, health food store that I shop at in Cambridge, and there was this brand of yogurt that I really like, and, you know, week in and week out, I get this yogurt. One day I reach down, and it's not there. And suddenly, there's a bit of suffering. It's not big-time suffering, <laughs> but it's suffering. And so, doing this kind of exercise, you turn, you say, well, am I holding on to something? Yes that particular brand. Why isn't my brand of yogurt here? You know, I, I've been able to get it every time I've come in here. I'm a regular customer. Why don't they improve distribution or something? And soon you find yourself 
suffering. Okay, so uh, some of the, a very important step in liberating yourself is to learn how to examine what you're doing in the moment that brings on suffering. And what the Buddha is saying is attachment is a very uh, powerful idea. If you, if you go to that, you'll see essentially what it is is attachment to me and mine. It's the ego at work. This is, I, I wanted that kind of yogurt for me, and someone, some bad people took it away. It's the four and five-year-old that we all still live with. Yeah. What? No, no, it's not. Uh, in the seeing of it, it falls away. You know, just so you see you have a laugh at your own expense. So that's an easy one. Uh, you know, there are others that uh, the mind keeps going, perseverates, you know. It's, it's not a special medicine. Now, you can use the breath to help steady yourself and also to keep from getting lost in what's happening, and losing yourself in what's happening. Breathing in, and this one is really pretty easy. That's why I brought it up, yeah. Someone took your spot. Right. What, you were cooking? You weren't really letting it go. You were pushing it away. Yeah. Okay, but let. Okay, I don't have any magic formula, but one thing you could. One thing, let's say your spot is not vacant. Okay, one thing you, you can do, you see, you use the word letting go, and we commonly, where I live in Cambridge, Harvard Square, letting go is now a big, t- it's in now, along with natural and, uh, and mindful. It's, you know, it's coming, it's replacing organic, and it's, you know, as the wholeness and all that. Uh, so everyone's letting go of everything. In the meantime, I don't see any change, you know. But uh, it's just a fancy word for pushing away what we don't want. Okay. This might help you. Very often, when the word letting go is used, it means letting be. Okay. But in a special way. So, for example, you walk, let's reenact it. You walk in, someone has your spot, right? And there's suffering, right? It's my spot. Okay. Okay, so you very nicely, a civilized person, you don't push them out of the way, you, you get up and you get another spot and you sit down and there it is again, it's still there. Okay, so let it be. Uh, examine uh, the resentment as you breathe in and breathe out and watch the mind and it just, it be, uh, humor is a big help here because it's hilarious. Wouldn't go away, would it? Come back to where? Well, oh, okay. Look, if you can, cur- yeah, yeah, yes. Okay, but remember, it's letting it be with mindfulness. It's not just to. Uh, drown in your resentment. It's to learn. 
and you see, you see what it takes to get you to suffer. Yeah, it doesn't take very much. Uh, and so as you start examining it, now some of it is harder, of course. Deep attachments that we have. Yeah. Hey, um, please. Which states? I'll tell you in a second. And also, if you give examples from your life that might illustrate one is clarity, the other is mindfulness. <coughs> okay. I'll start with, uh, to me, they're pretty the same. Uh, can you uh, pinch yourself right now hard? And Can you feel it? Can you really feel it? Yeah. You just answered both. Did you, you feel it as you're doing it? You were mindful of the. What does it feel like? Is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? There you go. Look. Okay. It's not. A, that's what it is. You just did it. What's there to think about? Thinking about it takes you further away. That's the problem. Too much thinking. Really. Like depression. Like depression, or simply uh, when, when, you're, when, you're, when you're doing breathing, calm exercise, you're feeling very calm. Even though it's interesting, you're clarity and sleepiness, even though it was thoughts in your head. What is it that clarity to be a kind of visual thing? It's a metaphor, but I. I you're too intelligent for me. <laughs> this is for simple minded people, this practice. Okay, well, go ahead. Okay, it's not different in principle. Uh, I'll give you a verbal sense of what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is, first of all, it's it's preconceptual. It has nothing to do with any concepts. Does that, that make sense? It's not an idea. It has nothing whatsoever to do with thought. You can be mindful of thought, but that's not thinking, that's mindful. What we're normally doing is thinking. In a moment that you turn to the thinking and are aware of it, admittedly it's a more subtle energy than the pinch, that's why I picked a simple thing, but it's the same principle. Uh, when the mind gets really clear, you can hear your own mind thinking. Does that help? Now with depression, Depression's a, not only a subtle energy, some of it's not so subtle, it's quite dramatic, but where is it? Now, some of that's in the body. That would be similar to the pinching, where it'd be easy, you could feel um, fatigue that was mentioned, or tightness around the heart, or uh, the, the heartbeat has changed, the pulse has changed, uh, uh, etc. But also, depression is a mind state. Uh, if you go into a doctor's office and they say, how have you been lately? And you say, I've been depressed. How could you tell the doctor that, a psychiatrist, let's say, or any, any physician or a family member, you had to know that you felt that way in order to report it? Do you see what I'm So that in some, we're all mindful to some degree. All that the Buddha has done is to, 
as human beings, we have this unique ability uh, to be conscious of our life as we live our life out. And we're all living out our life. But we have the ability, and that can be enhanced with training, uh, to, con to live our life out consciously. As we live, we can uh, be really sensitive to what that, the, the livingness is all about. It can be felt. So, to some degree, you already have mindfulness. Now, we're purifying it so that, let's say, depression comes or fear or even degradations of silence, which will be even more subtle and more to, you know, I think, in the back of your question, the mind can get very, very still. Uh, in fact, that's the direction the practice goes in. It becomes very still and very spacious. And as you learn to live in that stillness, you'll see that stillness is, a very, is highly charged with life. It's a very subtle, it's the most subtle and refined form of life energy. And you can feel the gradations of it. I think the Buddha listed something like 26, or I don't, I don't hold me to the number, different gradations of silence that can be actually uh, known by mindfulness. So mindfulness is non-conceptual. Mindfulness only happens in the present moment. That's the only time it can ever happen. Mindfulness is not for or against anything. Uh, it has no investment or bias whatsoever. It knows. The job of mindfulness is the knowing, like a mirror. Okay, now, you have that mirror, I have that mirror. When you heard, did you hear a bird chirp at all? Did you ever hear a bird chirp? I mean, like today when we were listening? Okay, you did it. What more do you want? Now, the... the Yes. And I take it that the latter is mindfulness. Yes. Uh, and I guess my, my question to Stuart is, since I, I tend to think highly verbally, highly conceptually, how do I bring mindfulness to my daily life? How do I take this pure feeling? What pure feeling? You're getting me confused. Concepts. What do you mean by pure feeling? The, this, the sense that you're saying that... Ah, okay. The, the different pressures on my feet that talk about... You, Yes. Yes. Look, let's say a child starts uh, playing the violin at a very early age, they, and they love it. But their music is not much. But they're really, you know, just squeaking away. And then, forty years later, they're in Carnegie Hall. They were still playing the violin. Is, uh, that came out of uh, practice, refinement. It's no different than anything else. But what we're refining is our life. We're refining ourselves. Instead of a musical instrument or a particular art form or a craft, what we're doing. So that, that awareness that you want, you said, how can I bring it from, into daily life? You can't bring it into the... What you have to do is continue this practice wherever you are. And the degree to which you do that, it becomes stronger. It becomes more refined, like anything else, like sport, a martial art, a dance, you tell me. It's not different in principle. So the refinement comes from the, the engagement, the interest, the application. And it gets clearer and clearer, sure. Yeah. Okay. The last sitting you said. Um, the last sitting? 
Yeah. And um, spontaneously it arose up to me, um, okay, now this is a matter of life and death. Mm-hmm. Um, you pay attention to the breath. And it was, it, it arose as a real strong desire to pay attention to the breath. And seemingly as a result of that, I was able to be with almost every breath. Mm-hmm. Um, it was preceded by this desire, like, I really want to do this, this is really important. Um, and, and also, like, I stood Sort of the thoughts flowed by and saw them more vividly than normally. Very rarely that powerful. I think you'd be exhausted in about half an hour. But I, I, I get your drift. And, um, so I don't know if you Yes. I understand. That's why we're here together. In other words, as individuals, it's harder to do. Gathered together as a community of practitioners, we're all giving each other energy. So we're here alone in one sense, and we're also here together. And uh, sometimes things are done. There are particular meditations to enhance that. For example, there is a death awareness meditation, where literally you're helping people understand they don't have forever, assuming they were already on this path and they already care about it. It's not something I would do with beginners uh, because people would just uh, perhaps become morbid about, you know. Um, What happens is the preciousness of life comes up. But, you know, that can come to anyone from any kind of thing. It can happen as a result of the death of someone. It can happen out of one good sitting where you realize um, what you're playing with with meditation and you fall in love with meditation. For example, uh, you wanted me to get be a little bit more personal. I was a college professor for ten years, and I was I thought I was happy. I mean, I was happy uh, being a college professor. Um, for whatever reason, and I don't know how can I explain it to you, uh, there came a point when I discovered this practice where uh, I just fell in love with it. Okay, so then people said it must have taken tremendous courage to give up a career in the university. Uh, you know, with all the security it's entailed, to uh, step out of that and start wandering through Asia and all that other stuff. I had some fear, you know, as to how I'd feed myself, for sure. But I don't think it took, it didn't take that much courage, because to not follow through on that, I would have felt like an idiot, because I found what I really love to do for me. I'm not saying that it is for you. So that's how it, now, that doesn't mean that every day I feel that way. I don't. It goes in and out and up and down. But by and large, I'm really interested. I don't get tired of I, uh, refining this stuff, um, even teaching of it, especially if the form is correct. Um, and I've gotten help every step along the way by teachers who were even much more inspired than I was because they had gone dramatically deeper than I had, and just spending time with them was very, very helpful. And then it didn't last. I'd come back from Asia, and then a month later I would get caught up in the mundane problems of uh, 
paying my rent and telephone bills and all that, and then, oh, then I'd wake up and get back on. So that it's, the journey is not like a super highway to this, you know, you ride, it's not a Hollywood ending, it's not like that at all. And it's different for each person. But there's no question that interest, urgency, for example, if you understood, um, it is life and death. That is, the degree to which you are clear and the degree to which you're confused makes an enormous difference for the quality of your life, your daughter, I know you have a daughter, and all the people in your life, your patients. Uh, same for me, same for everyone. So if we realize what was this, we are, we're not aware of the price that we're paying uh, because of ignorance. For example, you, now I'm, we only have a minute so I can get on a soapbox. Um, a few months ago, I saw in one of the, it's either Newsweek or Time, um, the last unexplored realm or the last frontier was the ocean. Somehow, okay, outer space, we've got people on the moon, that's okay. Planet Earth, we have that all mapped out. And uh, now, um, but the ocean, we now have equipment, we, let's go down there, there's all kinds of incredible things that we can find. It's an amazing unexplored frontier. And I just felt like, what about the mind? Whatever happened, you know, like, here we are, we're looking, for, you know, we find a little something or other, and we say, this is a sign that there's intelligent life on Mars, you know, some little rock. There's intelligent life, and everyone's getting all excited. My question is, is there any intelligent life on Earth? <laughs> okay, now what is being said, of course, is there is. Human beings have immense potential. Uh, scientists know the brain is hardly being used just to look at it physically. Okay, um, so look at the world. Is this is all the suffering that we do to each other? Is that, is that really the best we can do after thousands of years? So we have amazing computers and technology, and uh, life is still uh, a battlefield. We're just much better at it than the cave men and women were. Uh, it's a source. It should be a source of immense shame. that we have squandered the endowment that we have, which is a extraordinary, and human beings have it. Some of us get very damaged at birth, physically and otherwise. Everyone in this room has it, of course. You would, couldn't possibly be here. So if you can start to see that, now the danger is you can become messianic and try to get everyone to practice, and you do that sometimes. <laughs> so why do you do that? <laughs> Trying to convince yourself trying to rope people in so that it'll convince you that you should do it. Okay, so forgetting about uh, brand, brand names like Insight, Meditation, Zen, and so forth, it's more basic than that. It's self-understanding. In other words, the degree to which we understand ourselves, uh, life, the quality of life can be different. The degree to which we're confused and don't understand ourselves is suffering. It's as simple as that in a way. So shouldn't a very high priority be? I know it's great to go down into the ocean. I'm not down on that. But what if the values changed? And maybe they are. Places like Omega are helping. So that part of education is not just absorbing knowledge of what previous people learned, as valuable as that is, but that self-understanding is not some luxury item for mystics, <laughs> that it could be part of just the general education of all human beings. Krishnamurti, if any of you have heard of him, was my first teacher, 
That's what he said for 60 years. That's what he was saying. He tried to put it in the framework of education and make it accessible for children and everyone. I don't think he had a lot of success, uh, but certainly, do you see what I'm getting at? So I don't know, but we try everything we can, practicing together, different forms, chanting, reading books that are inspiring, go off and work with teachers, go off to Asia, go in a monastery. Uh, but finally, when your experience starts to yield the fruit of meditation, then you won't need uh, people like myself. I mean, if you want, you can hang out with me, we can be friends, but you won't need to be with someone like me. Because you know that what you're doing is intrinsically really uh, worthwhile, and perhaps, if not the most important thing for you to do, certainly one of the most important things to do. I think it's the most, obviously, I have a bias. Because you can't give... Sometimes people say, well, isn't this very selfish? You know, just, we get that question a lot, especially from beginners, and maybe some of you are thinking that. Just sitting there for hour after hour, just concerned with yourself. Well, that would be a misuse of meditation. That's self-preoccupation, which we already know how to do. Um, but the degree to which you, in your work on yourself, let go of, of greed, of hatred, and all the stupidity and all that stuff, that's all you have to offer the people in your life. I mean, you don't offer them any more than who you are. That's who you have to offer. Your children, your husbands, wives, partners, uh, business associates, parents, everyone. So when you're sitting here, if you're really doing the practice, you're not just, you're doing it on behalf of the human race. I know that sounds pretty inflated and pompous, but uh, in a certain sense it's true, at least the portion of the human race that you're in touch with. Can we have a, a moment's silence, please? May we see things exactly as they are. And may such clear, direct seeing free us from all forms of limitation. and so forth. Yes? I, I meditated back in my uh, cabin. My roommate is in silent retreat. And I found my time span, because I wasn't with the comfort of the group, that I couldn't sustain such a lengthy period. Even though I would try, it would like dissipate after maybe 15 minutes. <laughs> I understand. That's, that's why we're here. <laughs> yeah. It's really as simple as that. Oh, so let's t talk about 
stuff having to do with uh, practicing once you leave here tomorrow as we get close. Uh, but any uh, questions about your daily the There's a daily life here. You know, the one advantage of most retreats are total silence. Here we have silence plus a lot of people doing other things. And so we can turn that around and learn an aspect of the practice that usually you do when you go home. So if, we, if there are no questions on that, then we can move on. But I just want to make sure that that's touched. Yes? Right. Don't grab so hard. That's all. Yeah. In principle, it's exactly the same. Someone speaking to you, and suddenly uh, the mind is in Toledo, Ohio, and you're looking and smiling, and or your mind is rehearsing what it's going to say. The only difference is now that we start to notice these things. So you begin to see that you're, uh, you're not fully listening. And in the seeing of the not listening, true listening is born right in that moment. So yes, in principle, it's paying attention and notice how we're not coming back. That's what I meant. The reason I say don't grab so hard is that we're going to have to come back so many million times that we better learn how to do it gracefully. Otherwise, it becomes grim. Yeah. Now, as the attention gets steadier, of course, the mind wanders less, so you don't have to do, maybe we'll cut it down to 100,000, something like that. Yeah. Please. Um, I can say, Maybe you should get a bench. Now it's something else to buy. <laughs> Sorry. Oh. <laughs> uh, let's take the questions about here. Yes. Excuse me, let me suggest a good one for you if you're going to get a bench. I've never used a bench in my life. Recently I threw my slipped a disc, of all things, doing a lot of computer writing. And uh, so now I have to use a bench. I'm still, it's awkward for me. I'm not used to it. But this is a really very, very good one. I'll tell you where you can get it. Yeah. Yeah, I went to uh, his uh, concert last night, and I became aware of how half the time when I'm listening, I'm thinking about something else. And, and I'm sure I must do that all the time without even being aware that that was true. So I just started uh, watching my yeah, that's it. That's the, the, um, I just would like to make a very slight suggestion. That is, if you're at a concert, the main thing is not the breath, but the music. If you're washing the dishes, the main thing is the dishes, not the breath. If your child wants a hug, the main thing is the hug, not the breath. So in that case, the breath is kind of auxiliary. It's, it helps you to do the listening, the hugging, and so forth. But not everyone. The breath is very useful for many, many people, and some people find it gets in the way. The main thing is the mindfulness. So, but yes, you, you, that's it. And so now it's just a matter. So you can practice wherever you are. Yeah. Yeah. 
See, here's a, a difficult thing to learn. I know I've said this many times. I'm saying it in a slightly different way. Your life, just as it is, provides you with the perfect materials to practice with. Wherever you are, whatever place, whatever time, hot, cold, you're healthy, you're sick, it's on and on. Because you always have the possibility of being mindful. Something's always happening, inwardly and outwardly. We have reactions. So all the material you could possibly, it's all there. It's very rich. You don't need anything else. What we have, this is, in a sense, a kind of laboratory or a protected area where we can simplify our life dramatically so we can learn how to do that. But then often what happen is people, happens is people get attached to this form and create a split between this and that. There's no this or that, really. Yeah. Please. To be in a rush. Yeah, for the people being in a rush without worrying about being bad for rushing or anything else. Yeah. What if I'm like my body all wrapped up and rush, 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 yeah. I, so it's the mind that ch- ch- you fix the mind. The body was going at the same speed. Yeah. Okay, let's play on that theme a little because this is something that comes up often. In Cambridge, uh, it's an urban center and people often come from work to practice in the evening. And sometimes they have to drive rapidly to get there on time. And typically people will say, you see people come in huffing and puffing and full of tension. It's like they're rushing to get someplace where they look to relax, which doesn't make much sense. But then again, sometimes the car does have to go fast in order to get there. But the, the car may have to speed, but the mind doesn't have to. So the mind can be very, actually good drivers can drive very fast, and they're not dangerous at all. They're probably quite calm and at home in the speed. So uh, it's that kind of thing. There are endless refinements on it. Yeah. We have a spider joining us. Yeah. The other uh, instance was that I, I've been on other retreats and I find that I get very judgmental. And I talk to other retreat people about this, and it seems to be somewhat common. But I find myself, people I don't know, I've never talked to, and they never talk to me lately, inside what I've gone. And I found myself doing that yesterday with the change of, instead of believing what I was saying about this I found myself uh, listening to myself making the judgment, but being aware I was making the judgment yeah. that the person really wasn't what I was deciding. Exactly. Was, which is the first time that's ever happened. Okay. I totally bought into whatever I made up about that person and believed that that's Yeah. Okay. Uh, keep doing that. That one is a very important one, as all, all the ones you're mentioning are, because we do so much of it typically. And it isn't the person. It, your mind has created a label or an image of them, and they're probably doing it to you too. Just, you know. <laughs> he looks very judgmental to me. <laughs> Look at that sourpuss. <laughs> um, but as you can't stop the mind from doing that, and there's no need to annihilate those mind states. 
but rather just see them. They're clouds. They arise, they pass away. Hear them, look at them. And uh, it will change the quality of your life very, very much. Not to mention the people you come in contact with. Yeah. Please. Oh, no, if, could we just stay to here? What, uh, okay. Well, okay, I'll just come here. I was walking here and uh, I was walking fast. And uh, I guess something about it felt as if this was not the case. It, it felt automatic. Like I, something was carrying me, but I didn't really need to walk at that pace. And what I normally do is just stop and, and then somehow try to sense which speed I need to go and then up in slower speed. And this time I just uh, paid attention to the speed I was going at, just how I felt, how it felt, and it just adjusted itself. Yeah. But normally I kind of consciously slow it down if it feels automatically, automatic to a place I think it probably should be at. But this, it just adjusted itself very quickly. The, the word uh, mindfulness is sati in the Pali and Pali language. And it has many connotations, but one of them, mindfulness, sati means mindfulness, one of them is, it's that which sets things right. Whereas it's always helpful, mindfulness is very useful. It has some kind of magic. I mean, it's invisible, where is it? You know, it doesn't weigh anything, it has no color, and yet, when it touches something, something happens. Yeah. Can we, I'm sorry to interrupt, but how do you do that? How do you not allow them to be upset? Is there control there? Yeah, no, I, let, let's, uh, I don't know either. Let, let's ex, uh, inquire into it because I'm not sh- totally sure. Um, first of all, the problem isn't the ears, in the ears. Uh, you've heard loud applause in your life, haven't you? Yeah, it's in the mind. Okay, so, be, so you do become more sensitive if you've been quiet all day so that now when you hear it, it certainly might feel just the way you describe it. I'm not denying that. Uh, but there are a couple of things. One thing that... I'm not sure you're saying this, but if not, you're pretty close to it, it seems. Uh, if you really pay attention to, the, to the, the raw sound of clapping, just the way we've been listening when we were sitting, to chirp, chirp, to be 100% like clapping mind, 
I mean, you're just really listening, not the word CLA, but uh, the, the sound, the pure sound of clapping. If you're very, very attentive to the sound, then there's no room for the mind to start uh, thinking and making up what's going on, particularly to express, this is too loud, I hate this, because the momentum of the thinking mind is stopped by the full attention to the sound. It's not a, you're not being violent or negating anything, it's just the attention is so total that there isn't, in a sense, uh, a break, an opening for thought to come pouring in and tell you what's happening. Okay, but here's one lesson that you may be able to learn from events like this. There are two arrows. You remember the example that I use of the Buddha's two arrows? The first arrow that hits you is the loudness of the sound. The second arrow is the mind's reactivity. It doesn't like it. Uh, it's averse to it. Uh, it winces, whatever language is appropriate. If you can slip in under that and feel how much you don't like it, uh, then you're beginning to learn how to pull the second arrow out. It's still loud, but it's not a problem, or it's not so much of a problem. Do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah, okay. Please. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. No, I understand. When the time comes to think, just think. That is, you'll see that uh, often when you're thinking, there are other things mixed in. Uh, just as when you're doing something else. Thinking is mixed in with the other thing that you're washing your dishes and you're thinking. So, let, for example, let's say you have to write. Uh, well, let's say right now, I have, to, I have to think and speak. As I speak, I'm really hearing what I'm saying as best as I can. If I don't, then it'll come out automatically. Let me give you an example. Maybe this will help. Well, let's, this is speaking. Maybe we can get a little bit closer to just thinking without it. I'm just working it out myself as... I have to give the breath awareness instructions. I've given it probably a million times, a hundred thousand times, maybe a billion. I don't know, but, or, you know, come to rest in the breathing. You've heard it already. You've heard it a lot. You just have to hear it for five days. I have to hear it almost every day. Okay. And I would say most of the time it's fresh and alive for me, but not always. When it isn't, it's an alarm. It's a signal that I'm not really mindful. Then, I, then I'm speaking just from memory and I'm not fully there because I've said the word so much you can probably wake me up in my sleep and uh, say how do you follow the breath and uh, you know I'll just start like a tape okay but when I'm aware even though they're the same words in one sense they're not they're, it's the first time because I'm fresh with those words so that while I'm speaking I'm alert and it's a totally different feeling I'm truly not bored with it I enjoy it and I'm enjoying it as I go I don't know if you believe me, but that's the, to the best of my ability. And when I'm not, I know it's, I've learned from my experience, that means I'm not fully there. And so it's an alarm, and then I, I can correct it. Okay, I'm just thinking, with thinking, 
When the time comes to think, let's say you have to pay a telephone bill, you have to use the thinking process, then 100% pay the phone bill. You'll find that you become tremendously efficient. Uh, when it's time to, let's say I had to do some writing recently, um, you start to write and then you can see the mind have resistance to, let's say you don't get the idea correctly and it's frustrating, you try ten times to say something and it, none of it sounds all right and then an emotion comes in, I think it would be good to take a break and go to the refrigerator now and, or, you know, uh, or just, oh, I don't, uh, not fully facing it, but with the practice what you can see is there's something that's distracting you which is some emotion, like uh, you're a little upset because the writing isn't going well or you can't say it correctly and you feel frustrated. So it, sometimes all it takes is a second or two and you hear that extra and it falls away and then you have the thought process, what I found, is a little bit more clear for having dealt with the noise around the thought process. But it's to, re when you're, now you're talking about uh, what just, when it is to think something through Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I found that I was, you know, that I would say, no, I'm not going to think about that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't. I think I'm getting closer, but maybe I'm still not. A, okay. I'm just thinking because I have to do a fair amount of thinking when you teach, and probably many of you teach. You know that, of course, I'm using words a lot. Uh, when I prepare, uh, let's say I have to give talks, and I have to give talks often and probably those of you who teach you know that, unless it's a subject where I have to have the text with me, where it has to be word for word, uh, because I'm doing this stuff all the time, this is how I live. My preparation is to get silent. Like sometimes all I need is a few minutes before, five minutes or ten minutes, sometimes longer. And then out of the silence, it seems like even if you roughly know what you're going to say, the silence is just a wonderful preparation and somehow the thinking is just so much more clear and creative and things come that you didn't even think of, you know. So the, some, the silence is a very wonderful energy and maybe we can talk a little bit about that uh, later on. Uh, I think the important thing that I would like to stress based on your question is if you go to meditation circles, certainly if you go to Vipassana circles and Zen, uh, I don't know the Tibetan situation as well, but I assume it's probably similar, you might come away with it thinking that thinking that thinking is no good, thinking is bad. Uh, and that's not really the message. Thinking is not good or bad. The problem is before we've examined our mind, we're enslaved to thinking. Because we don't really understand what thinking is, 